A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored in memory of a Talmud of Lamja Petach Tikva, Rabbi Vadia Rosenberg, for his on his tenth yard site, and also the recent passing of the Rosh Hashiva of Lamja Petach Tikva, Rabbi Eliezer Eiser. Um, Rabbi Eliezer Eiser actually was a grandson of his namesake, Rabbi Eliezer Shulevitz, who was the founder of the Lamja Yeshiva, and he was uh, quite an impressive individual in his own right, and. Um, He's, uh, you know, the, one of the last uh, later chapters of the Lamja, Pet, the Lamja story, the Lamja Petach Tikva story, but um, I like, like going out of order just to get things a little more confusing. So just once I mentioned Rebelezer Eiser, and since he recently passed away, um, so he succeeded his father, Reb Meisha Leib Eiser, um, when he passed away in the 60s, um, and he had a vision to the future. The, the Lamja Petach Tikva Yeshiva, um, for all kinds of factors, all kinds of reasons, which I'll get into when I get up to it, um, it, 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 it decline, had a decline as a yeshiva, and Rebbe Eliezer Eiser opened it up as a kailo, with an eye to the future, but what would be more successful in the future for married individuals. And it was a very prestigious and large kailo. It was very successful, actually, and it was in the original Lamja Petach Tikva Yeshiva building. In fact, he made it a yeshiva-style kailo, um, uh, he, one of the one of the only ones, one of the only kailo for married individuals worldwide. I'm, I'm sure there are a few others, but one of the only ones worldwide where a an organized and formal musar seder is an integral part of the married scholars' schedule and curriculum. And it was still remained in the Lamja building on Rehov Herzl in uh, Petach Tikva. Rabbi Eliezer Eiser presided over the Lamja kailo for a half a century, and he. Uh, just several weeks ago, passed away. He was very well loved and respected in Petach Tikva. And for our non-Israeli listeners, so this will be hard to understand, but the headlines when he passed away was that he was unique among Israeli Torah leaders in the respect that he was never involved in politics and that he took public transportation. And that uh, makes one very unique in the Israeli Torah world and that earns you a headline. So there's two, um, I guess... Uh, impressive aspects of him, his, his greatness as well. Um, speaking of Israel and the Lamji Yeshiva, so I want to introduce the story of the Lamji Yeshiva with a story that happened to me. 
it was a funny encounter I had um, and um, had to deal with some, some sort of tax issue a few years ago. And if anyone has lived in Israel or visited Israel or is trying to visit Israel now, you'll know that they're wonderful with bureaucracy. They, they can drive you crazy um, with, with, with any bureaucratic thing and red tape. And I had to deal with some tax issue and it wasn't possible to do on their website or by phone. God forbid, see, I had to actually schlep down during like three and a half hours a week that they're actually open and seeing people. You wait a couple of hours online and when you're ready to, to, to go out of your mind, you finally get an appointment for a few minutes with some um, clerk behind the desk. So I get to the clerk behind the desk. I'm all frustrated and, and you know, worn out. And it's a young, friendly, surprisingly um, young man. And he's looking at my, he was Datilu, me. He looked at, he was religious. And he, he, um, He's looking at my papers, and it said that the two places where I'm where I'm employed, and at that time I was working for the Mir Yeshiva, and I was also in in Yad Vashem, so I had two two uh, two interesting things there on my uh, you know employed by Mir Yeshiva and employed by Yad Vashem. So he looks up at me, and um, and he says, "Oh, so you're in the Mir, and you're in Yad Vashem, so you're into history and stuff." So he says, "Let me tell you something. My grandfather is an interesting historical individual." I said, who's your grandfather? So he said something, something. I forgot his first name, Roch. I said, Roch, Roch, it sounds so familiar. So he said, yeah, well, he learned, he studied in the Mir in Poland before the war, and he immigrated to Palestine before the war, and he lived in Tel Aviv, and he's still alive. This is several years ago. He said at that time he was 97 years old, and he had, I don't think he lived in Tel Aviv anymore. He moved to Ranana or something. And he said, uh, he said, it, it said, the name sounds so familiar. He said, well, his father was Rabbi Shua Zelig Roch. He was the Rosh Hashiva in Lamja. In, 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 and he had sent his son to study in the Mir Yeshiva. And the Rabbi Shua Zelig Roch was unfortunately killed by the Nazis, along with most of the Lamja Yeshiva. But his son had immigrated to Palestine before the war. So he said, so he said, you know, I thought you'd appreciate that. You're the Mir, you're Yad Vashem. So there was like a, a strange encounter, and instead of being a totally annoying meeting, it was actually exciting. We started schmoozing, and of course it was great that I was able to keep everyone else waiting online longer because I wanted to find out more information uh, about his grandfather and about the Rach uh, family. So Yeshua Zelig Rach actually was the Rashiva in Lamja, in, in, uh, Lamja while his brother-in-law, who I said before, Ramesha Leib was the Rashiva in Petach Tikva, and his son, Rabbi Lezer Eiser, is who I was talking about. So there's other people involved, of course. Also, there's Rabbi Chil Mordechai Gordon, who we'll get to, and they're all sons-in-law of the real story, the founder of Lamji Yeshiva, Rabbi Lezer Shulevitz. So we've, on tours of Poland, we've driven through and even stayed. I've stayed in a hotel in Lamja once or twice. It's, you know, it's a town. It's a large town. It's not really a city. And it has an interesting Jewish history and lots of prestigious rabbis, including Rabbi Shua Leib Diskin, Rabbi Ochaim Mezel, who was later famous in Ludge, um, but he's one of his earlier positions for a short time was in Lamja. There was quite a few other uh, famous rabbis there. And, and the last Lamja Rav was a very famous individual, Rabbi Shishatskis, who um, was a very prominent rabbi in Poland before the war, and he was involved in the Vada Yeshivas, who was very close to the Rebbe Chaim and he was able to escape at the beginning of the war, and he um, made it to the United States, and where he was became a 
uh, Rebbe in Rabbinit Sikhan and Wayu. And uh, so he was the last Lamjarov. And there are others as well. And uh, it was a famous uh, personality in Baltimore, Chaim Shapiro, for many years, who wrote uh, a few a few interesting books about pre-war Jewish life and during the war. And uh, in one of his books, Once Upon a Shtetl, so he talks about his, he called his two hometowns, Tiktin and uh, Lamja, and uh, they're not far away from each other, by the way. And uh, it has very nice stories and a profile of the town. And there's many other books that have stuff about Lumja. It's quite, it was quite a famous place. It was very Zionistic. And it was also very non-Hasidic. The traditional elements in the town were non-Hasidic, despite it being in Poland and not far from the centers of Polish Hasidic life. Um, another famous personality who was born in the town was Rabbi Tzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, um, whose, whose grandson just became the president of the State of Israel. But Rav Herzog was the chief rabbi of the State of Israel, and he um, was born in Lamja before they moved to, to England. So before the war, there were about 10,000 Jews in, living in Lamja, and they were a significant minority, close to a third, between a quarter and a third of the population. And either way, there's lots of Jewish history in the town. But the focus that we're going to have over here is on the yeshiva that was in the town. The Lamji yeshiva was unique in many, many ways. First of all, it was a Polish yeshiva, but it had a Lithuanian style, a Lithuanian approach. There were Most of the student body, for most of its history, was came from a Hasidic background, which was very unique for a Lithuanian-style yeshiva to have the majority of their students come from Hasidic homes. You did have Lithuanian yeshivas, such as the Mir or Radin, that had a you know a minority or a small minority even of Hasidic students, but here the basically the I don't know if the entire student body, but the overwhelming majority of the student student body of Lamja came from Hasidic backgrounds. You also had a unique um, farm system, I guess we'll call it to borrow baseball terminology. They had they had a um, um, the Lamja Yeshiva established their own. Uh, yeshiva katanas, yeshivas for younger students in the vicinity, in towns nearby that would be feeder uh, yeshivas into the, the older Lamji yeshiva. Um, it, was, it was another uniqueness. It was also the second Lithuanian-style yeshiva to open a branch in Palestine. In 1926, a branch of the Lamji yeshiva was opened in Petach Tikva. And, uh, and not only was it the second one, it was only two years after the Slabatki Yeshiva had moved to Hebron, and had come in 1924, so they were, they were pretty quick. But not only that, in many ways they were pioneers, uh, because uh, they didn't come because of the draft. Uh, Slabatka was kind of forced out, they, they, they had to go. Uh, Lamja was, they took a real initiative. And in addition to that, Slabatka consciously chose Hebron as their no home, because they wanted to be um, they, they, there was a debate about whether to establish the yeshiva in the new yeshiva or the old one, and they couldn't be in Yerushalayim for all kinds of reasons, and Hebron was as closest to the old yeshiva as they could, but they did not want to be in Tel Aviv or Petach Tikva, whereas here they wanted to open a Lithuanian-style yeshiva, one of the prestigious yeshivas of Eastern Europe, in the new yeshiva, in Petach Tikva, um, which was a big statement. Uh, so that was, and that's a huge story. In fact, that might be the 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 the, the biggest story of Lamja is the move to Petach Tikva and what they produced there and what the history of that yeshiva was there. Because for uh, thirty forty years it was 
one of the main yeshivas in the land of Israel and, and produced uh, some of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people of the 20th century, the Torah leaders of the, uh, of the, of, uh, in Israel of uh, the 20th century. Another uniqueness of the Lamji Yeshiva, and this is the uh, Poland branch, was its mashgiach for the last uh, um, close to 30 years, last three decades basically of its existence, Ramesha Rosenstein, who, Rosenstein, who was a very unique personality. He was a student of Kelm and very close with the Rucham Levavitz of the Mir. And he was a very, very unique, has a unique place in the, in the history of the Muslim movement and the development of the thought of the Muslim movement and a very, very uh, um, important educator and, and uh, you know, somewhat of a forgotten figure also, unfortunately. So that's a story of Lamja as well. So we're hopefully going to get to all of it. If I don't get to everything, we'll simply have a follow-up uh, episode. And not, not, not the type that I'm going to wait to one day to have a part two, but, you know, in the coming days, I'll just release a, a, a second part uh, uh, on Lamja. And uh, so you don't have to wait that long this time. And uh, if you want to sponsor it, you could be in touch with me. Um, but um, but that will be you know will be if I don't if I don't have time to finish it I'll be immediately followed with a uh, with a, just a follow up of, of just to round out all the rest of the history of the Lamji Yeshiva. Um, it was founded. Uh, the founder of the Lamji Yeshiva was Rablazer Shalevitz, and he founded it in 1883, which was the year his teacher Rabbi Israel Salanter was the year of his passing. Uh, it was the first yeshiva in Poland. All the, in, in, in central Poland, we'll call it the Congress Poland or Greater Poland, or they have all kinds of names for that area of Poland, but it means not in the area of, of today's Lithuania, today's Belarus, the Russian Pale of Settlement, however you want to classify the area where most of the Lithuanian-style yeshivas were, where Velazhin, where Mir, Tel, Slabatka, where they were. This was much further, deeper into Poland, into, closer to the Hasidic areas. It was out of the original... Lithuania, Lita, Belarus area where those first yeshivas were. And uh, Rablazer Shulevis was the creator of the yeshiva. And as is the story with many other yeshivas and institutions, the Lamji yeshiva story is intertwined with its illustrious founder and his biography, his life story. He, his life was essentially building and expanding Lamji yeshiva. So the story of Lamji is the story of Rablazer Shalevitz. So it's important to understand who this person was. He was born in the area of Lamja, but he went on to study in Valazhin. He also studied in Bialystok after his marriage. He was later in the Prushim uh, uh, group who studied in Aishishok, which was a very famous uh, group. And, uh, and for a short time, he was in Memel by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter towards the end of the latter's life. But, um, but he was, you know, enraptured by, by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. It became his, his Rebbe, his role model, despite the fact that it was a very short time and it was towards the end of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's life. And this, together with his relationship with Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv, who was the altar of Kelm, made a deep impression on Rablazer Shalevitz, and he came to identify with the ideals and the values of the Muslim movement. And the yeshiva he founded in Lamja would be identified with the Muslim movement from the outset, and may have been one of the earliest yeshivas to openly identify as such, following, obviously, Slabatka, which was the first. Technically, Kelm was the first, but Kelm wasn't a regular yeshiva in the the you know, normally accepted definition of the word yeshiva. Uh, it, it, we, we can classify it and talk about, I think I have spoken about Kelm, but definitely is more to speak about it. 
But um, Slabatka is looked at as the first regular mainstream yeshiva that was also a Musa yeshiva. Lamsha might have been the second. It was really a pioneering, uh, it, was, it wasn't just that it was in Poland, but it was a openly uh, identified with the movement, with the Muslim movement. So the yeshiva grows, and at its peak it had several hundred students. And one of the unique uh, things that Reblazer Shulevitz did, like I said before, was build a farm system. He established satellite yeshivas in the entire district of Lamja, and these were for younger students, and were to see, serve as feeder institutions to the primary yeshiva in Lamja. And they did so, and it, the, he had the Russia yeshiva of these other yeshivas you know, pick out the ones who they felt it would be most appropriate for them to move on, and this kept um, you know, the quality of, of the Lamji Yeshiva still as a premier institution, uh, while he had the other s- smaller yeshivas, um, you know, v- there for, for, um, for as, ma- you know, as many people who uh, would be able to, who wanted to study in Lamja and they could study in one of the affiliate institutions. He also maintained and supported a small kailal with married students, several tens of married students, which was unique for the era. There was almost no uh, institutions for married students. There was very, very few. So Lamja was, again, rather pioneering in that respect. And at one time, there were 12 different yeshiva katanas affiliated with Lamja. The best students from these places, like I said, were sent there. And Reblazer Shalevitz himself would make periodic visits to oversee the activities of all the affiliate uh, yeshivas in the area of, of his of his places. So he took a direct responsibility for the entire operation. Now, following the travails of World War One and the yeshiva's resettlement in Lamja, he eventually moved to Palestine. He moved to the land of Israel, and he he was getting older. He was quite old at the time. Um, and he leaves the yeshiva in the capable hands of several of his sons-in-law, uh, whom we'll get to soon. He had quite a few sons-in-law, and many of them were uh, were affiliated with Lamja, either in Poland or in Israel, uh, or both. Um, so we'll talk about them soon. We're still going to stick to the story of Reblazer Shalevitz himself. When, several years later, in 1926, a few years after he had arrived in in uh, Palestine, the opening of the Lamja branch in Petach Tikva in 1926, he became involved in that endeavor as well. So he had ostensibly moved there for his retirement, but he came quickly out of retirement and he uh, you know, helped the uh, new branch thrive and build itself up as well. He lived in Tel Aviv and he passed away in 1931 and is buried in Harazasim. So getting back to the yeshiva itself, so we have the founder. So the rise of the yeshiva in size and in prominence. So Blazer Shalevitz established a highly developed fundraising infrastructure, originally with some of the prominent, with some prominent individuals who assisted him in the purchase of land and to build a veritable campus to serve as buildings for the yeshiva. And uh, um, that was also you know, to have an entire a campus around it and to, to you know have impressive buildings in Lamja. And as far as I know, those buildings do not exist today. And his emissaries, who he hired for fundraising, went across Europe to do uh, all kinds of fundraising. And the students, as in many other yeshivas, uh, had their own organizations to assist other needy students, which was quite common for yeshivas at the time. A special camaraderie that uh, that yeshiva students had that they you know that assisted others, and they would you know, grassroots movements among the students to have these different organizations to assist others with clothing, with, with uh, you know, the, to, to, to help each other out, um, which they ran and, and funded on their own. And one of the more creative measures taken in Lamja among the students, which I've never seen anywhere else pre-war uh, 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 to, to, to raise money for this 
for this self-help organization and a fascinating idea, creative, of creativity, was the selling of rabbi pictures, of gedolim cards in nearby towns. You'd have the yeshiva students have pictures of rabbis, of prominent uh, rabbinical figures, and they would go sell them into to, to nearby towns, and the proceeds went to the funding of these yeshiva programs, which I mentioned. Now, when I grew up, we had baseball cards and gedolim cards. We collected both and um, traded both and you know, we had when, when we were in, I guess, more of a religious mood. We did the gedolim cards in more of a you know regular mood. Uh, we uh, or irreligious, I don't know. Uh, we did the baseball cards. So, so I, we I I never realized at the time that it was already had a precedent in Lumji Yeshiva. It was already a pre-war phenomenon that they had pioneered the market for gedolim cards. Uh, the sources do not tell us which rabbis were sold in these in in this endeavor. And more importantly, the sources are silent as to which rabbi pictures were considered more desirable or sold uh, for, for, for more, and what the prices were. That information would have been priceless, and <laughs> would be uh, amazing to know. Unfortunately, the details are, are not known. The yeshiva through its history was a bit of anomaly, a bit of an anomaly as a Lithuanian yeshiva whose primary student body was drawn from Hasidic poem. This would be a defining feature of the educational approach of Lamja through the generations from the time of Rebbeza Shalevitz, who encouraged the Hasidic students to retain their distinctive Hasidic garb, which was unlike other Lithuanian Torah institutions, which discouraged their Hasidic students from keeping their Hasidic garb and encouraged them to shave their beards and wear short jackets to fit in like everyone else, because this is a Lithuanian style yeshiva and you have to look uh, proper. But in Lamja, they allowed them to, you know, since that was the majority and they understood where they're coming from. And later on, when the long-time Mashkiach, Ramesha Reisenstein, developed his entire Musser approach, partially to make it applicable to his Hasidic students, which we'll talk about either now or in when I get to it, or perhaps in another couple of days in, in part two, um, Ramesha Rosenstein, the, this, this uh, pillar of, of the Musser world as a Mashkiach, he, he developed an entire approach to the study of Musser and to make it applicable for students where he incorporated certain Hasidic ideas and we see the influence that it had, the fact that the, most of the student body came from this background. So World War I comes and of course like everywhere else, you know, Lumsh is on the front lines and mostly falls apart like most other yeshivas at the time. Uh, although a small portion of the yeshiva does make it to the Russian interior to a town called Priluki in Ukraine and the remnants of Lomji Yeshiva returns to the town following the war, and they set about the task of rebuilding. It was at this time that Rebichil Mordechai Gordon, uh, the most prominent and famous son-in-law of Rebelezer Shalevitz, the oldest son-in-law of Rebelezer Shalevitz, begun, begins to take an active role as Rebelezer Shalevitz was getting on in his years, along with his brothers-in-law, Rebishua Zalagrach, Reb Alter Egois, Reb Meisha Leib Eizer. But Rebichil Mordechai Gordon was the dominant uh, figure, and he had a he also had a fascinating life story. He grew up in the town of, of Truk, Trukai, which is south of Vilna, which is actually the same place as Reb Nachum Partsovich, the Mirish Yeshiva, where he grew up. His father was the rabbi of the town. And in fact, interesting uh, tidbit, uh, when Reb Nachum Partsovich was in the United States after the war, and Reb Chil Mordechai Gordon, who we'll get to in a second, was living in the United States during that time. He lived there for quite a bit of time. So Reb Nachum 
went went to Rebichil Mordechai Gordon. He got close with him. He, he looked at him as a, as, a, as a bit of a mentor and a guide during that time because he was a Lanzman. He was someone who came from the same town and uh, and uh, and they had a relationship. It's an interesting uh, tidbit. Rebichil Mordechai Gordon went to Slabatka. And he went in its early years. He was there during the anti-Musa revolt in 1897, and he sided with the altar of Slabatka and the founding of Knesset Yisrael in the wake of that revolt. And he was already married. Rebbe was already married by the time all the other famous people of Slabatka, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rabbi Aaron Cutler and all the other famous students of the altar arrived in Slabatka. They came, Rebbe Gordon was already out. He was already married. He already was in Lamja. So... He he was like a, a Slabatka student way before everyone else, um, and uh, and and um, during the early years of Slabatka, he goes ahead and marries the daughter, obviously of Reblazer Shulevitz. Unfortunately, she passed away shortly after their marriage, and Reblazer Shulevitz, who's brokenhearted at the loss of his daughter, he offers to Rebbechil Mordechai Gordon to, for him to marry the next daughter, and he does. So he was his son-in-law twice. He married the second daughter, and that marriage lasted uh, you know, quite a few years, and had a big family. Many years later, when she passed away, Sir Bechil Mordechai Gordon went ahead and married a third time. Uh, this time, his third wife outlived him, and uh, when she became a widow, she actually married Rebchatzka Labramsky. Uh, so that's another good historical tidbit. But either way, Rebchil Mordechai Gordon is, is uh, given a position in the yeshiva, uh, by his father-in-law shortly after his marriage, in 1907 already, he has a position in, in, in the yeshiva. And his uh, younger brother-in-law, Rabbi Shua was also a student of the Slavatki yeshiva. And he was more the day-to-day Rosh yeshiva, giving the, delivering the shiurim, while Rabbi Chil Mordechai, excuse me, excuse me, um, was... Uh, was fundraising. He was. He spent. He spent a lot of his life fundraising. In fact, Rebbechil Mordechai Gordon went on a fundraising trip to the United States in 1926, then to Petach Tikva, to the new branch, uh, for several months, where he delivered shiurim there before returning to Lamja. And then the financial situation worsened, and the yeshiva led him to another fundraising trip to the United States in 1935. And it seems that after that trip, he never returned to Lamja. That's what it seems. I didn't get that whole picture clear. It's something I want to look into. Um, but he stayed in the United States. He resided there for the next 15 years, through the war years until 1950. And first he was fundraising for the Lamji Yeshiva in Poland, then he was fundraising for the Lamji Yeshiva in Petach Tikva. He was also one of the founders and very active in the wartime Vad Hatzala rescue of uh, yeshiva students and rabbis. He was active in the Agudas Rabbanim in the United States as, 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 as a rabbi. So he, you know, he settled there. Essentially, he lived in the United States. In 1950, he decides to move to Israel, where he reassumed his position in the Lamji Yeshiva in Petach Tikva this time, where he attempted to make it a strong Musser influence in the Yeshiva, including the establishment of a Musser house, a base Hamusser, which was almost unheard of post-war in either the United States or in Israel, that a yeshiva would have a base hamusser, which was a, a cornerstone of the Musser movement of Yisrael Salanter and Kelm and Slabatka and Avardik. But post-war, it was almost non-existent. I remember Volba, uh, Shalom Volba attempted to do one in Yerushalayim. I don't know how successful that endeavor was. But um, but Rabbi Chaimurachai Gordon built one and established one in in Petach uh, Tikva by the yeshiva. He also had an impact on the wider Petach Tikva community. Uh, he passed away in 1964, and he's buried with the other greats of Lamja 
and uh, and Petah Tikva in the local uh, uh, Segula Cemetery. It's the name of the cemetery in Petah Tikva. In Rabbi Chimur Hagar, interesting. We're talking a lot about his sons. In, uh, sorry, with, uh, with, he had a, he had a big family, um, but he had a son who was in uh, in the Chevron Yeshiva and was later a member of the Haganah. And he was killed during the Great Arab Revolt, uh, unfortunately. So his son was killed in his own lifetime. Um, so that's, um, that's about the, uh, the Lamji Yeshiva. I'm going to continue in part two about Ramesha Reisenstein, about the famed uh, Mashgiach of the Yeshiva and his impact. And then, of course, the story, the amazing story of the Lamji Yeshiva in Petach Tikva, which I think is a, a very powerful story as well. And, I'll, uh, and that will be coming soon. So stay tuned for that part. And this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed. <laughs>